0: We're here today to talk about what uh, the Christian response is to immigration. And we have a full program here for you. I'll give you an idea of what we are going to talk about. First, we'll have Nick, and he will speak to us about the biblical view for a few minutes. And then we have a very special speaker, Denise Chang, who I'll introduce in a few minutes. She goes here to church at Waterstones. She's one of us, so if you have questions after today, she's also available to answer them. And after she speaks, we'll then have a panel of three people who we'll introduce at that time who'll be able to answer any questions that you might have. We have some blank cards in the back and some pens. If you want to write down questions, we ask you to hold them until that time of the program so we can get through all the material that we need to get through. But I think you'll appreciate and enjoy today's uh, discussion because it covers a lot of topics that you do not hear in the sound bites and on the news headlines. So I think that you'll find this very um, informative to you. So I'd like to introduce Nick, and he will... Come up in just a moment. I knew you were there somewhere.
1: Good morning. Afternoon. I guess it is afternoon, huh? (laughs) I guess I need to stand up here. Do I? Yes. All right. Yeah, that would help. Um, I want to spend a few minutes, 10 to 15 minutes, giving a a theological basis or framework uh, for the issue of immigration and how we deal with immigrants. And really just walk through some scriptures and some thoughts. Uh, you have a handout or should be getting one that uh, kind of lists the points I'm going to make. I'm going to stop in between and ask a couple questions, just to, which I think may come up, just to pre- preempt that. At the end, we're going to do questions, so you'll be able to ask questions of things that I make you confused about. So, uh, to develop a, an ethic on how we treat Immigrants or aliens, sojourners, foreigners in our country. I think the primary place to begin is in Genesis 1, verse 27. Um, There it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male, female, he created them. Um, And the point is, all people, every tribe, language, nation are created in the image of God. And thus they have intrinsic value before God. This is the foundational principle in terms of all ethics. All ethics go back to this notion that people have God's image in them. And because they have God's image, they have infinite value. And that's the ground or the basis, foundation upon which we build our entire ethical systems. If you take that out, you don't have a basis for ethics. And I think it has to be the foundation for how we, as God's people, treat those who are foreigners in our country or outside our country. Second... God has a special affinity for foreigners and requires us, God's people, to to love them. Uh, Deuteronomy 10 is a great example. He defends the cause of the fathers, the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing, and you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Now, the question comes, why does God care that much about foreigners? Um, And I think there's a couple things To answer that question. Uh, First, he begins to link foreigner with what we call the quartet of the vulnerable. So you'll see alien or foreigner or immigrant linked with widows, orphans, and the poor. And it's very evident in scripture that God is very concerned about those four categories of people. And the question is why those four? And the answer is twofold. First of all, they're the most vulnerable in society. That's what links this quartet. Typically, they are landless. They are without family. They're disenfranchised, in other words, without rights. And for the foreigners, they're most often the victims of racism or xenophobia. And one of the things you discover about God's heart is he is most concerned about those who are marginalized and vulnerable. So God says, hey, when it comes to the foreigner, I really am concerned about them, along with orphans, widows, and the poor second reason here as well, he says uh, you're to love those who are foreigners for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. In other words, the Israelites have firsthand experience of what it's like to be a foreigner in a foreign land and to be mistreated and oppressed. Their experience of Egypt and being slaves in Egypt. Well, God is saying that should have an indelible impact on you that frames your ethics in terms of how you treat others You should have an empathy that goes beyond other people's empathy because you know what it's like. So that's key in understanding God's response to the foreigner. By the way, the word for foreigner here is the Hebrew word ger. And uh, there's some debate about Hebrew words in this whole thing. We could talk about that later. But most scholars see a foreigner as a person who is not native to the local area and is thus without family and land. So it's a pretty expansive term. The summary ethic then uh, of how we're to treat foreigners is Leviticus 19. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So if you want to evaluate How you treat a foreigner or how the country you're in treats a foreigner, the context is you should love them as if they're native-born. You should treat them as you yourself would want to be treated. That's the ethical standard that God sets in relationship with the immigrant. Three, means we should not oppress foreigners, either individually or as a nation. Exodus 23, do not oppress a foreigner yourselves. Know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. Uh, So individually or corporately, we don't oppress or mistreat. Deuteronomy kind of plays that out a little. Do not take advantage of the hired worker. Uh, Foreigners are often hired workers who is poor, needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your own towns. And then jump down to verse 18. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. So he has some reasoning there. Number four. So you don't oppress the foreigner, but number four, the foreigner should have the same legal rights as citizens, according to God's economy. Numbers 15, 15 through 6. The community is to have the same rules for you and for the foreigner residing among you. Notice this. This is a lasting ordinance for generations to come. You and the foreigner shall be uh, the same before God, before the Lord. The same laws and regulations will apply both to you and the foreigner residing among you. That means uh, from a Christian ethic, foreigners, immigrants are to have the same legal rights whether we consider them citizens or not citizens, whether they're legal or illegal. God ties the issue to the image of him in them rather than the legal designation of them as a citizen. Because they're in the image of God, you treat them Accordingly, and extend to them legal rights. Five, foreigners should enjoy the same social benefits as citizens in order to ensure that they continue to live among you. Social benefits means providing for them things they need to survive, like food, medical care. Leviticus 25, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor or unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner or stranger. Notice the implication. It's obvious you are going to treat a foreigner or a sojourner this way, provide for them. Deuteronomy adds to that. At the end of every three years, it's talking about the tithe. Bring all the tithes that you're, uh, that year's produce and store it in your towns. So that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance... In other words, the Levites didn't have land. Um, so they didn't have a way for providing for themselves. And the foreigners, who didn't have land... And the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns... May come and eat and be satisfied... So provide for them what they need to survive. Um, and notice it at the end. So that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work in your hands. You begin to see this notion that how you treat the foreigners is going to impact how God treats you. In fact, God actually punishes and rewards nations on how they treat their foreigners. Um, Jeremiah 22 Jeremiah is talking to the kings of Judah, and he basically says in verse 3, Do what is just and right, rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you are careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates, right." In chariots and horses accompanying their officials and their people. In other words, you will be blessed and your position of power will be preserved. But five, but if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will be a ruin. He's saying, look, that, that how I treat you as a nation is going to be impacted by how you treat especially foreigners. Then six. It is God's intention that foreigners live securely among the people and be treated as native-born. They're to be given an inheritance, actually, according to Ezekiel. New Testament kind of reflects, not kind of, but reflects the same ethic. See that in Hebrews 13, 2, when it says to show hospitality uh, to strangers. They may be angels, and the stranger there includes foreigners. Matthew 25 uh, is the judgment of the sheep and goats. In the passage where how you treat the least of these is how you're treating Jesus in a sense. So the ethic in the scriptures is pretty clear. We're to love the foreigner as ourselves. I want to talk about one other verse and ask the question, what do you do about Romans 13? And that's a great question. Uh, Romans 13 tells us that we are be, to be subject to the governing authorities because they're established by God. Verse 1 of that chapter, let everyone be subject to government authorities for there's no authority except which God has established. But notice this, the authorities that exist have been established by him. In other words, they're established ultimately to to accomplish his purposes. And notice why, what he wants them to do uh, in verse 4, he says that the purpose for the government is to render justice and to do good. In fact, the government is to be God's servant to work out his purposes. Verse 4, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. And what's interesting, we we often take Romans 13 out of its context. Say, well, you just got to obey the government, the laws of the land, we're for for law and order. That's true. Governments have the right to establish laws and they have the right to establish borders and they have the right to establish immigration policy. But a bigger purpose of the government then is to do it in a way that's just and fair and renders good. And if you look at the context, it's really interesting. Right after the command to obey the government, in Romans 13, 8, Paul tells us what the primary obligation is for the believing community. Verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. So even though we're to obey the government, within that context of obeying the government, we're to figure out how to love others. Verse 9 and 10, love your neighbor as yourself. love That's the standard again. How do you do that? Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, this command to love includes the foreigner or stranger or even our enemy. If you go back one chapter into Romans chapter 12, Verse thirteen: We are told to practice hospitality. That word hospitality literally means the love of a stranger. It comes from two Greek words, philo, which means to love, and xenion, which means the stranger. You've heard the word uh, xenophobia—that's fear of strangers. We are to do the opposite: not be afraid of foreigners or strangers. We're to love foreigners or strangers. That's the ethic of the New Testament. And it doesn't get modified by whether they're legal or illegal. Uh, Romans 12.20 says, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In other words, you don't get an exemption even if they're your enemy. Uh, You don't get an exemption based on their legal status. So, implications. Love is to be the controlling principle in our ethics and behavior, even in our politics. A person's legal status does not minimize or eliminate our biblical obligation to love them. In fact, I think Romans 13 puts an obligation on us to try to change the system where we can. We should work to change broken laws. Because the ultimate intent in law is to render justice and good, and from a Christian perspective, compassion. That means at some point we have a responsibility out of love to stand back and evaluate the justness of our laws and ask the question, are they right or are they broken? And in a pluralistic society, as Christians, we have the privilege and responsibility to work to change unjust laws and uncompassionate laws that do not reflect a biblical value system or God's heart. What I'm saying is just as we would oppose legalized abortion and work to get that law changed, so we should oppose harsh, unjust, uncompassionate, broken immigration laws. And you'll hear places where the consensus is that our system is broken, uncompassionate, and at times harsh. And rather than simply getting angry at those who, out of desperation, break those laws, as believers, maybe we need to stand back and say, you know, that law really needs to be different than it is if we're going to live out the ethic of loving them. And by the way, just a final note, in extreme and desperate cases, people practice civil disobedience. And often have to choose the lesser of two evils. And that is sanctioned at times in Scripture. In Acts chapter 4, 18 through 20, Paul and and, uh, Peter and John have been preaching the gospel, they get arrested, and the Romans and the legal authorities tell them, Stop preaching the gospel. And Peter and John says, "Uh, should we obey you or should we obey God? You say, Well, Nick, that's preaching the gospel. Well, if you want to see that played out in an immigration setting, look at Exodus 1. Pharaoh doesn't want any more Israeli Jews, immigrants in his country. So he tells the midwives to kill the babies. And the midwife says, no, we fear God more than we fear you. We're not going to kill him. And they get God's blessing for breaking the law. All I'm saying is sometimes people are challenged to do the lesser of two evils because they're in incredible, desperate situations. And rather than just us judging them, we need to stand back and evaluate our system and why it puts them in those desperate situations. Ask if our laws are just doesn't mean we need to break the law, but it may mean that as a responsible Christian who's exercising the ethic of love, we do everything in our power to change those laws so they're not harsh and uncompassionate. Pretty close. (laughs) Mary, you want to come and introduce Denise?
0: Before I introduce Denise, I want to say that besides your voice and beside different actions, the church is going to be offering some opportunities of ways to serve our brothers and sisters. So at the very end, as I wrap up, I'll be talking a little bit about that. But I'd like to introduce Denise. As I said earlier, she goes to this church, so you can Ask her today questions, or you can ask her in the future. But she is in a unique position to talk about this topic, and I want to tell you a little bit about her. Denise grew up in a primarily immigrant neighborhood in California. Her husband and his family are immigrants, and she has personally been involved in the family sponsorship and citizen process. She has an MA in social sciences, in which her primary field of study was border and migration issues. She wrote her thesis on undocumented immigration and detention in the United States, which you can read online if you Google her. Denise has spent months in Central and South America doing graduate work. She has spent time observing immigration court proceedings and has volunteered for two years in the Denver contract detention facility which houses upwards of 900 detained migrants waiting for their court hearings. So let's welcome Denise to talk.
2: Hi. Thank you so much for coming out um, this afternoon to talk about immigration. It is definitely a national hot button, and you already know that because you're here. Um, It's a big, complicated subject, too much to talk about in a single meeting, so what I'm going to do today is try to clarify what you're seeing in the news right now, why it's happening, what it means, and what Christians can do or are already doing to love their neighbor. So with that in mind, I'm going to spend about 10 minutes talking about what the options are, for avail- what options are available for legal permanent immigration in the United States. What the phrase stand-in line means in real life, who has a line to stand in and who does not. Next, I'm going to talk specifically about the asylum-seeking process because most of what's happening at the border right now and most of the controversy is about asylum-seekers specifically. And finally, I'm going to talk about the undocumented population and what our national policy is in dealing with them and what that means for members of our local communities. So with that, let's get started. So most people agree that a legal, fair, orderly immigration system is the most ideal situation. We also hear people say that the system is broken and that it needs to be fixed. And what that means is they are aware that legal, fair, and orderly is not happening. However, there's a giant difference of opinion on how to fix it, and which is why we haven't con- comprehensively adjust- addressed this subject in 25 years. When we do address it, it's not going to be a system. What it's going to be is a collection of thousands of little laws that address each and every point of immigration, including all of the things I'm going to talk about here. And our answers to those questions are going to be driven by what we think about ourselves as a nation and what we think about immigrants and who they will be in our nation. So there are basically five ways to enter the United States legally in order to live here permanently. There's two steps involved. The first one is getting a visa, which means you can actually come into the United States. And the second is a longer process, and it's called establishing legal permanent residency. I'm going to refer to this as LPR status or getting a green card. So our current system has been in place since 1965, and family unification is the most important uh, priority. And so family sponsorship is how the vast majority of immigrants enter the United States. This is also what's referred to in the media as chain migration. Basically, a US citizen with a financial means to do so can sponsor their parents, their spouse, or their minor children, and petition the government to allow them to enter. This is a long and very bureaucratic process, but the visas are unlimited, and so um, this process takes a couple of years. However, if the sponsor only has legal permanent resident status, or if the petition is for a different kind of family member, for example, adult children or siblings, it becomes much more complicated. You cannot sponsor relatives beyond that. You can't sponsor your grandparents. You can't sponsor your cousin. Um, And so it's actually feasibly impossible to sponsor large numbers of people. The number of visas available for this type of integration is about Uh, 226,000 per year, and a little less than 16,000 per country. And so, depending on which country you're trying to immigrate from, there are long wait lines. In fact, if you're trying to come from Mexico, China, or India, some of the lines are as long as 20 years or more to get a visa. Finally, if the person is already in the United States, it becomes really complicated because the person has to go back to their home country in order to finish their processing in their own consulate. If the person is here without legal status, that process of leaving will trigger a bar, and they cannot re-enter the United States for many years, even if they actually got a visa. So these bars can be appealed, but it's a very risky process, and deportation is a very possible outcome of this process. And for this reason, the undocumented are reluctant to expose themselves by using family relationships to legalize their own status. Next, we have employment visas. Employment visas are mostly temporary, and they're negotiated between the employer and the Department of Labor, not directly with the workers themselves. Workers can only stay as long as the specifications of the visa are met, and if they are not met or if it ends, they must go home, which means we don't generally refer to these people as immigrants. However, if your employment visa is current, you can attempt to apply for a green card in order to change your status to immigrant. There are a few employment visas that are permanent, and these are primarily professional and entrepreneurial in nature. So basically, if you have a lot of money to invest, or if you have some extraordinary skill or knowledge set, you can get a permanent visa to live in the United States. This kind of visa is what's called a merit-based visa, and this is up for discussion in the country right now. Now, between these two, the change of status visa and the permanent employment visas, there's about 140,000 a year available for these. And um, in the same way as family visas, depending on which country you're from, the line can be quite long to actually get one. So Tony and Vivi actually have a deep personal understanding of this process, and the story that they have to tell is both fascinating and eye-opening on how it works. And so if you're interested in this, I would strongly encourage you to ask them to tell their story. The next category available is called a diversity lottery, and it's exactly what it says it is. It's a lottery. In order to apply, um, there's some basic requirements that have to be met. You have to have a high school education. You have to have some job skills. But of those who apply, every year, 50,000 lucky people get chosen at random. And while that sounds like a great way to enter the United States, the truth is your chances of getting one of those visas is about 1%. So before I go any further, what I want to just slip right in here is that every single person who enters the United States is an immigrant. In whatever category I'm talking about, including the diversity lottery, they are heavily vetted by a number of security agencies So you can be confident that we know who's coming in and that they are not a national security threat. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. The next category is refugee. Refugees are accepted for resettlement. They do not apply on their own. Instead, they're referred to our refugee program by another agency, usually the United Nations, Each year, the president makes a decision about how many refugees he's going to accept into this country and where they're going to come from. And his decision is usually made on the national and domestic priorities at the time. So this year, in 2018, we uh, said that we would accept 45,000 refugees. The truth is, we actually only accepted about 22,500, about half that. Next year, 2019... Um, the number is set at 30,000. This is the lowest number we have ever had in our history of our country. Um, The truth is, looking forward to that, we are only actually expecting to settle half that. Only 1% of refugees are ever accepted for settlement anywhere in the world. They don't choose where they're going to go, they don't choose when they're going to arrive, but when they do, they need help adjusting to their new life in the United States and in establishing self-sufficiently very, very quickly. There's a handful of organizations that manage this resettlement process, including the International Rescue Committee here in Denver. And they welcome volunteers if you want to be a part of that. Right now, private individuals and organizations cannot sponsor refugees. But they can come alongside them and help them in their Assimilation process. So, if you want to know more about working with refugees, talk to Mary Case. She knows a lot about this and can plug you in there. Um, the term refugee is often misunderstood, so I'm going to talk a little bit about this. The word refugee is a political word. That means that you are persecuted based on your race, your nationality, your religion, your political opinion or you're belonging into a certain identifiable social group, like homosexual. It is not an economic term. You cannot become a refugee based on a natural disaster in your country. Poverty, the economic collapse of your nation, hunger, civil unrest, and this is a really important one that we're going to talk about several times, gang violence. We're gonna, you're going to hear us again talking more about this later. So the last legal line to enter the United States is pleading asylum. Asylum seekers have to meet exactly the same standards as refugees, except that they're already at our border, or in some cases, they've actually entered the United States. This is also a very narrow line to stand in, and it is the only line available to the desperate of the world. This year, the United States accepted for asylum 31,600. Um, if you, if you want to know, if you want to get involved in, in any of the immigrant populations that I've talked about, if you want to know how to talk to them, how to meet them, how to be sensitive to that issue and you're really not sure what to do, Etana is here and he would love to talk to you about ways to get involved with any immigrant community in Denver. So now that you know what the lines are, um, I want you to consider who does not have a line to stand in those without an immediate relative to sponsor them, those from countries with prohibitively long waiting lines, those who are already here without legal status, those who do not have an exceptional ability or wealth, and the vast majority of the suffering of the world do not have a line to stand in to come to the United States. This is one place where our system is said to be broken because for these people, there is no way for them to enter legally. There is no line to stand in. So now that you have a good overview of who is allowed to enter legally and who is not, I'm going to switch gears a little and we're going to drill down heavily on the asylum process because it's the only option available to those who are in a desperate position. And it is one of the two issues that has commanded so much media attention recently. So in July, I went down to McAllen, Texas to work at the Sacred Heart Humanitarian Respite Center for a a few weeks. Um, McAllen is located at the tip of Texas, just a couple of miles from the border, and it's across from Reynosa, Mexico. This is the busiest port that we have in the United States. So I've been there before, I had friends, but the truth is I went because of the family separation issue, it broke my heart, and I had to do something tangible, so I went. But the story I'm bringing back for you is what communities can do to love their neighbors. So the Respite Center handles hundreds of asylum seekers um, every day, and they're usually people who have just been released from ICE detention and are on their way to stay with a sponsor as their case proceeds to immigration court. Those who are released generally have nothing except the clothes on their backs, and they're often very sick, they're hungry, they're confused, and they're scared. They're both scared from the conditions they left behind, they're scared from the trauma of the journey they just endured, and they're scared to know what might happen to them coming up. So, we refer to the people who come to the center as clients, in order to recognize their dignity as people who are deeply loved by God, and to remind us as volunteers that no matter how many people we saw that day, no matter what condition they were in and no matter what their story was, that in serving them, we are literally serving Jesus himself, as Matthew 25 describes. So this is what it looks like. Volunteers and staff greet new arrivals, they listen to their stories, and they review their travel documents with them very, very carefully. They help them understand where they are because they frequently don't know. They help them understand where they're going because they don't know how far away that is. They explain to them how the bus system works, how to make their connections, and what to do during layovers. And they also attempt to assess and meet their immediate needs. So most of the clients who come through have not had a decent meal for a long time, sometimes months. So, the soup is the first meal they receive in order to prepare their stomachs for solid food. The center serves at least one hot meal a day to between 100 and 400 people, although I heard last week they had one day they served 600. Each day's meals are usually donated that same day by churches, by volunteer groups, by the local community. In addition, the Respite Center offers fresh clothing and shoes Showers, shelter from the weather, and a safe place to sleep. They have phones to help them contact their family at home to let them know they survived the journey and that they made it across the border. They help them contact their consulate. They have medical consultation. But mostly there's a listening ear and spiritual encouragement and prayer. The hundreds of donations of shoes, clothing, and toiletries that are given out every day arrive literally that day. Um, again, on an entirely volunteer basis. So one afternoon while I was working, the doctor called out that a volunteer was needed to take a toddler to the emergency room. I was standing there, I volunteered. Araceli was asthmatic and she needed inhalers, but hers had been confiscated by ICE while she was in detention and they had not been returned. And she was in the middle of a massive asthma attack. And this is common around our country today, the destitute and those who do not speak English have a great deal accessing medical care because they can't explain it and they don't qualify. And so it was my job to advocate for them. She was triaged immediately, and after stabilizing her, she also had the flu and bronchitis. So while we were waiting for the hours during her treatment, I got to know her father, Jose. By the way, Jose and Alurceli, are actual real individuals, but I have changed their names. Jose was from Honduras, which is 1,600 miles south of McAllen, and his story is honestly one I've heard many, many times while volunteering in the detention facility here in Denver. Jose had been approached by the local gang twice. He had refused both times to join him. They warned him that if he refused the third time, they would kill him and possibly his family members too. So he and his wife separated, and they tried to hide, each staying in several different locations throughout the country. But unfortunately, Jose was found, and in desperation, he grabbed his baby and fled. You need to know that migration is a very expensive and dangerous trip. On one hand, Honduras has one of the highest murder rates in the world, and they have close to 200,000 internally displaced people. On the other hand, in a country where the average annual income is between five and $6,000, the cost of a coyote to make the trip is between six and $8,000. If you choose to attempt the trip without a coyote, the chances are high that you will be robbed by bandits, that you will be kidnapped and used as a mule or a prostitute, or that you will just flat out be killed. Right now, you're seeing caravans form in Honduras to come to the United States. They're not coming to rush the borders en masse. What they're doing is they can't afford a coyote, and they're trying to protect themselves in a group. Anyway, Jose had already been one of those internally displaced people, um, and he and his family were about to join the ranks of murder statistics. I don't know how he made the trip. Migrants usually don't talk about that because it is extremely traumatic. He hoped his wife had not yet been found, but he didn't know at that time. He did know that families were being separated at the border. But his fear was so great that he was willing to accept that consequence in order to maybe save his daughter's life. It is telling that the harsh deterrence that we've put into place are actually not deterrents. It's something that we need to think about. Anyway, he traveled 12 days to reach the US border. And once there, he waited his turn to cross. Um, Our ports of entry cannot handle the large numbers of requests that we have for asylum right now. And so people camp out on the bridge. It's actually a bridge between Mexico and the United States. They camp out on the bridge or in the general area nearby. They are given a number and when their number comes up, they are allowed to cross. So when his turn came, he presented himself at the port of entry in McAllen and formally pled asylum. As I mentioned before, this is a legal process. This is a legitimate way to enter the United States, although it does involve months of illegal limbo until his case is heard in court. The first thing that happens is that you're vetted by Border Patrol to make sure that you are not a known criminal, that you are not a gang member, that you have never pled asylum before, and that you have never tried to cross illegally before. And Jose passed that first screening. Next, you face an asylum officer who questioned him to evaluate whether he met the political definition of asylum. Um, You remember that this is not an economic um, word. The problem is is that political and economic are not mutually exclusive. They're not cleanly separated as we would like them to be because political persecution is often caused by war, economic failure, and natural disaster, and it results in civil unrest, displacement, and extreme poverty. In Central American countries, particularly this distinction is getting very difficult to clarify, because governments are often complicit in gang actions, and specific groups are targeted for violence. Asylum seekers who don't know that they need to meet the political definition will sometimes point to the causes or the results instead, and they will fail their credible fear interview, even though they may actually qualify. Understand that I want to plead asylum is not a set of magic words to enter the United States. You actually have to offer evidence. Because Jose was targeted specifically, rather than just generally, it's possible that he may qualify. But just a few days after Jose crossed, a memo was issued by the Department of Justice that changed the definition of social group, severely limiting it and excluding most uh, claims that are based on gang violence. This issue is currently being fought in court. But Jose and Araceli were very lucky. They did pass their credible fear interview, and after listening to the story, the asylum officer decided they may actually be able to defend their case in court. So he allowed them to proceed, which meant he was placed in detention. The family separation order had just been rescinded a couple of days earlier, and so he and Araceli were placed together. They spent nine days in detention at two different sites. Mandatory detention of asylum seekers is codified in the 1996 uh, Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act (sighs) era from now on. It does mandate detention, but it also assumes that you are only going to be in detention for about seven days. And it offers the Department of Justice the ability to waive that requirement. That is not happening right now, which means we are in violation of the U.S. protocols, for the treatment of asylum seekers and refugees. We are party to that protocol, and the United Nations is currently pressuring us to keep our commitments. So while the current policy is to hold all asylum seekers until their court date, which can be years away, by the way, there are not the facilities or the staff to carry this out. So, and there's also issues with jailing children. Therefore, if an asylee can find a sponsor, Um, who is willing to send them a bus ticket to physically provide for them until their court date and to guarantee that they actually will appear in court, they can be paroled wearing a GPS monitor. This is sometimes referred to as catch and release in the media. Um, However, as you can see, they are not truly released because they're wearing a monitor and we know where they are. Jose will wear the monitor for the duration of his um, period until he actually goes before the judge and the judge decides his fate. By the way, asylees have an extremely high um, appearance rate in court. They're very motivated to do so. 93% of asylees actually appear in court when they're supposed to. Jose had a cousin in Seattle who agreed to be his sponsor and sent him bus tickets. So he was released with the monitor and he will continue to wear it. ICE released him to the bus station. He was disoriented, he was hungry, he had not a cent to his name, and he had a very sick child. For this reason, Sacred Heart has volunteers watching the bus station 24 7. In every couple of hours, they bring a group of newly released asylum seekers to the respite center, where, as I mentioned before, they have a number of services available to um, get them ready for the next stage of their journey. We were several hours in the hospital with Araceli. um, But when we were released, one hour later, they were on the bus to Seattle. It's two and a half days away. This is what loving your neighbor as yourself can look like. But that's Texas. What can you do here? You're in luck. Casa de paz is on the panel here. They provide many of the same services to released asylees, and they're here to introduce you to ways that you can get involved with this population locally. So be sure to talk to them during the panel discussion and afterwards. So what's next? As Jose waits for his case to be heard, he's gonna complete a large amount of paperwork and go through an extensive vetting process that includes a number of federal agencies. I'm gonna give you a second to look at that. But because of recent changes in the prioritization of cases, it's unclear how long it's going to take for his process to be completed. It could be a few months. It could be two to three years. I've met people in detention that are five years in. When they reach immigration court, this is what's going to happen. An ICE lawyer will be the prosecutor, and he will present the case to the judge about why he should reject, reject asylum for Jose and Araceli. Jose is going to attempt to explain to the judge why he should be granted asylum under the legal definition and defend his case with sufficient evidence. He has no right to a lawyer to assist him. He might be able to hire one at his own expense, and the fact that he's outside of detention and has a sponsor means he might actually be able to do that. For those who remain in detention, there is almost no chance. Considering the complexity of the immigration system and the asylum process, and the very high stakes of losing, many have argued that without a lawyer, he cannot receive due process. And a lot of people don't care about that because he's not a citizen. However, they may not be aware that under the Constitution, under the 14th Amendment, due process is guaranteed to every person in the United States, regardless of their legal status. This is another issue that's being fought before the courts. So what are their odds? Jose and Arceli are citizens of Honduras. They have an extremely low chance of being granted asylum at their hearing. That means that between their initial Border Patrol vetting, their asylum interview, and their time before the judge, their chances of winning their case are approximately 17%. You're going to hear numbers like this being thrown around in the media a lot, 17%, 20%, 22%. And these are currently being used as evidence that their cases were actually fraudulent to begin with, implying that they have deliberately attempted attempted to lie to immigration court. What's actually happening right now is that there's a court fight over whether victims of gang gang violence actually qualify as members of a social group considering the inability of Northern Triangle governments to maintain order or to protect their citizens. This is another place the system is considered broken. The decision to grant or deny asylum depends heavily on the discretion of the judge, who may be sympathetic or who may not be. Depending on the court, grant rates vary from 2% to 96%. um, indicating that there is really a no-clear standard. Asylum seekers know this. They refer to this process as asylum roulette as they wait to hear what court they're going to be assigned. They're probably going to lose. Those who lose their cases are returned to their home in shackles. By ICE, very quickly, usually within a week, they can never attempt to plead asylum again. So what are their options? If their situation is really as desperate as they claimed, if they can't go back home, the only alternative is to make the journey again, and this time attempt an illegal crossing, either through the desert or via the vehicle of a smuggler. Last year, 310,000 people were caught attempting to do just that. But as you can see, I don't know how well you can see that, the orange piece of the pie is unaccompanied children, The yellow one is families with children. They compromise 40% of the people that were caught at the border this year. When they're caught, they're processed for expedited deportation, which means that usually the same day, they're brought to shackles in court, in criminal court, not immigration court. They're given a group trial of 20 or more, where they have no chance to defend themselves individually, a criminal record is opened on them, and from here on out, they will be considered criminals permanently, which will affect their ability to ever re enter the United States legally. Crossing the desert is extremely dangerous. This year, we found 300 bodies in the desert. We have no idea how many people died. The desert is very big. We also don't know how many people made it. But the undocumented population in the United States has remained stable for a decade now, suggesting a very low success rate. We don't know exactly how many undocumented there are here in the United States. The most widely accepted number is about 11 million, which is approximately 3% of our population. Of these, between 750,000 and a million are children. Half of them are from Mexico, about 16% from Central America, about 14% from Asia, and the remaining 20% are literally from all over the world. About two-thirds of them have been in the United States for at least 10 years, which means that they have strong family, business, and community ties, and they have either had no brushes with the law or only very minor ones. A large percentage of them are are members of families that include legal permanent residents and citizens. This is called a mixed status family, and it's an important word to know for two reasons. One is, is that the undocumented do not qualify for most public benefits. They don't qualify for TAMF, they don't qualify for SNAP, they don't qualify for CHIP. They do qualify for WIC, which is a nutrition program for infants, children, and women. They also qualify the only other thing they qualify for is a very abbreviated version of Medicaid which only has two services that they cover childbirth and they will stabilize some a patient with the acute systems that will jeopardize their overall health their bodily function or their organs that's it so one of the reasons So an undocumented person can actually go to Health and Human Services and they can apply for benefits on behalf of those members of their family who have legal status. And this causes a lot of misunderstanding, because a lot of people see that and they think the undocumented are applying for and getting welfare. That's actually not the case. The citizen members of their family are. The legal permanent resident members of their family are. But they are not. The second reason this is important is because when the undocumented are arrested by ICE, it literally dismembers their families, leaving children without one or both of their parents and spouses without a breadwinner. It's estimated that 80% of un- the undocumented adults work in spite of not having a 99. 9 They have their own businesses. They do day labor. They work with false social security numbers, or they're employed under the table. All of them pay sales tax and property tax, which is a major portion of state income, 40% here in Colorado. And many actually do pay federal taxes, state taxes, and Social Security. They're motivated to do so. If you wanna know more about how they pay taxes, how much they pay, and how that compares with whether they're an economic drain on society, there's actually a handout over there, (laughs) over there, that goes into a lot of detail and you can take that home and consider it. So why do they come? They know what they're gonna face here. Why do they keep coming? That's a really hard question, because 11 million people have 11 million different reasons. Clearly, their reasons are stronger than the personal cost of the deterrence. But some of the reasons that you'll hear most frequently are family reunification. Because as I mentioned before, family ties, community ties are very strong. And during periods, including now, when ICE is actively hunting down those who are undocumented in the United States, Their families have been dismembered, but they're still fathers, they're still mothers, they're still husbands, they're still wives, and they're trying to come back to take care of their family. I would do that. I'll lay money on the fact that you would too. For some reason, for some, their homes aren't actually dangerous, but they have lost family farms, they can't get a job, they owe money, They want their children to have an education, whether here or in another country, which, by the way, you have to pay for. Um, So they work for a better life. The same reason we all work. Just a side note, the United States has depended on migrant labor for more than 100 years. Sometimes there are formal programs to manage that migration, and sometimes not. But the migration patterns themselves have continued without interruption, because we actually need the workers. We have not yet created a system that efficiently gets guest workers to the needed positions. And so, there are generations-old relationships between employers and specific migrant-sending communities. And these relationships are still used today. Finally, they're afraid to return to their home countries. And we've already talked about this, and I'm just going to expand on it just a little bit. Some of the people who come are actually refugees. They have chosen not to live in a refugee camp for the rest of their lives. Some of the people, some of these people have failed an asylum plea, as I mentioned before, or they know they won't qualify to begin with. What you may not know is that besides the migrant routes from Central America, there's another route, one that's used by people from all over the world, including Africa, Asia, Europe, Russia, and South America. It involves taking a flight through Europe and landing either in Venezuela or Brazil. Then, a long journey on foot, by bus, or by boat through Ecuador, through Colombia, through the Darien, through Panama, through Costa Rica, and then they join the migrant routes in Central America. The people I know that have taken this route have talked about being en route for 10 months to a year. I've talked to people who've paid $45,000 for the privilege of doing this. And every person that I've talked to has told me how many people they've watched die in the jungle. It's dangerous, it's expensive, and still they do it. So with all of this, with all of this effort, a common question that's asked is, why don't they legalize? There are only a few very limited ways to legalize your status in the United States if you're undocumented. As I mentioned before, there's family relationships, but that process is risky. They can appeal defensive asylum once they've already been arrested and they're in detention. This rarely works. For some people, if they've been here a long time, they have a clean record, and this is key. They can demonstrate that they are the primary caregiver of a severely ill or disabled U.S. citizen. They can apply for and probably will receive cancellation of removal. You can guess how many people qualify for that. So the bottom line is no. Most people cannot legalize their status. Instead, laws restricting their daily activities keep them marginalized and vulnerable, and they live in constant fear of discovery. I would encourage you to learn more about the undocumented population and how you can get to know and serve these neighbors. Tony and Vivi are here from Centro Humanitario, and they can connect you to this population. The last thing I want to talk about is language. Language matters, because what we call people influences what we think about them. Today, you've heard me use the word undocumented a lot. You have not heard me use the word illegal alien, and you have not heard me use the word criminal alien. The reason is is because a person is first a person, not an illegal. It also recognizes that they are in fact here without permission, but it also recognizes the fact that legally this is a very minor offense. For example, entry without inspection, crossing the desert, is a misdemeanor. Overstaying a visa, which is responsible for a large percentage of the people who are here without permission, is a civil offense. It is not a criminal offense. So although we commonly refer to the undocumented as criminals and think about them as such, this is a false belief. Because the vast majority of the undocumented have not committed crimes in the general sense that we understand the word crime. And it is wrong to call the undocumented criminal aliens unless they have actually been convicted of a crime. Illegal alien. This one is also dangerous because the word alien implies that that person is fundamentally different from me and that they are distant from me. And the word illegal justifies an organized system of marginalization and oppression. As Nick said, God speaks a lot about foreigners in the Bible. The the concept of illegal is not in there. It is a relatively recent term and recent idea. So when Jesus commanded his followers to love their neighbor as themselves, predictably, the next question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus was very clear in identifying the Samaritans as their neighbor, those half-breed heathen foreigners that shared their border. In fact, these are their neighbors. And the truth is Mexicans and Central Americans are literally our neighbors. They share our border, they live in close proximity to our country, and we cannot claim to follow Jesus and ignore the second commandment, the one that is only second to love the Lord your God. So while it's true that some immigrants belong to gangs, some commit crimes, some deal drugs, We know this because we either have had a personal experience with it or because we constantly read stories of illegal aliens committing horrendous crimes. We read them in the media often. It's very easy to read these and believe that these isolated stories represent all Mexicans, all undocumented immigrants, all Muslims, or all foreigners. And it encourages fear to grow in our hearts. But the FBI actually disputes this. An examination of the demographic data of our prisons and jails right now shows that among the entire category of foreign-born who are imprisoned, which includes um, naturalized citizens and legal permanent residents, the crime rate is significantly lower, even half of what the native-born population is. Now, I don't know anyone who argues that those who commit serious crimes should not be prosecuted under the law, and in some cases, even deported. The National Criminal Database and the Immigration Database are linked, and ICE works very closely with the criminal justice system to deport those who have been convicted of a crime and served their sentence. And it is very rare that they're walking the streets freely. Although we constantly hear from the Department of Homeland Security, that they're hard at work protecting good Americans from the constant threat of aliens, who are threats to our public safety and threats to our national security. The data from ICE, Border Patrol, and the Department of Homeland Security does not support this. If you wanna know more about these data sets and you wanna look them at yourself, there's a handout in the back that goes into a lot of detail and presents you the data sets. I'm gonna warn you, they're long, they're dry. There's a lot of information in there. So, why does our country develop and maintain this false narrative? The bottom line is, it's no secret that we want to get rid of our undocumented population. We are trying in every way also to limit legal immigration, because frankly, we don't like foreigners. But even though ICE and Border Patrol budgets increase every year to support more technology and more officers, they keep coming. And so we try to convince them to leave on their own. Since the IRC law in 1986, we've adopted a strategy that you're probably aware of, but you probably don't know it actually is an official strategy and that it has a name. It's called attrition through enforcement. That means if we make the lives of our immigrants so miserable, they'll leave on their own and we don't have to pay for it. We as a society accept this policy because we actually believe that they deserve it. They're criminals. They're a national security threat. So we hold tightly because, and we use it to justify our cruel laws and our oppressive actions. Because otherwise, we'd have to think about what kind of people we are. This slide and the next one show a number of the laws that have been enacted over the past years that restrict the daily life and function of our undocumented population. They can't be employed. They have a separate criminal law that is harsher than the laws we apply to ourselves. They can't access college education. They can't drive. And because of Real ID, they can't board a plane. They have difficulty accessing things like bank accounts and credit, They cannot buy health insurance to protect their family and they live in constant fear that their family is going to be dismembered in a home raid, a workplace raid, or having their ID checked anywhere for any reason. Now the Bible is clear that the citizens of nations should grant their foreigners the same rights, the same responsibilities, the same laws, and the same social benefits that we apply to ourselves. We've also heard that the oppression of foreigners is on the very short list of things that made God so angry that he destroyed his own temple, he destroyed Jerusalem, and he removed his presence from Israel. That would be in the book of Jeremiah. So we as a nation have no business claiming that we follow God while we oppress our neighbors whom our God loves. This is a national issue, yes. This is also a community issue. But it is absolutely a Christian issue. So I'm not asking you to join one political party or another. I'm not asking you to choose between this cause and others you believe in. What I'm asking is that we change our minds on this issue. We are blessed to live in a nation in which we can express our opinions to our representatives who must take it to Congress. The just treatment of immigrants, whether legal or not, has not historically belonged to one party or another. And even though it seems like it right now, it doesn't have to. If constituents from either party demand it, our representatives must also, if they want to be reelected. So I'm challenging the church to align the command to love your neighbor as yourself with actually loving your neighbor as yourself. Now in closing... I understand that information and statistics can only go so far in challenging people to consider new ways of thinking. What really affects what we believe about foreigners is personal experience, which is why we're having this seminar, to find out more and to possibly volunteer and develop some personal experience. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to close with the story with my personal experience and the one that changed my heart. So, a couple of years ago, I was also in McAllen, same place, and I was um, walking a woman and her toddler through the services that the respite center had to offer. So, I brought her, I sat her down, I got her a bowl of soup, and while she was eating, I asked if I could take her shoes, ostensibly to get her a new pair of shoes because hers were really disgusting. Um, In reality, the respite center requires that, and we have to do it by hand without gloves. We actually have to take their journey in our hand for just a moment to think about it and respect it. So while I was doing that, the bundle in her arms began to cry. The la-la cry of a baby less than 10 days old. I looked at this woman. I knew how long she had been traveling. She had left her home nine months pregnant and ready to deliver. I don't know where she delivered that baby. In the desert, on the side of a road, in a migrant shelter? Did she have anybody to stand beside her besides her toddler? I don't know. I looked at this woman and I said, oh my God, who does this? And then I remembered. Mary, the mother of our God, took this journey. And so that's why I'm standing here in front of you today. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.